Welcome to Sci-Fi Tech Talk, the podcast where we explore the technology of sci-fi. I'm Jeff Sire, and with me today is Mike McPeak. Uh, considering the date, may the fourth be with you. Oh, yes. <sighs> and Julie Keel. Couldn't let it go, could you? You just couldn't. Hello. No. <laughs> Good on you. Well, I was going to say may the LaForge be with you, but I don't know, that might be stretching it a bit, but... Somebody suggested February 4th for this because it's a much better day to sit inside and watch a, a marathon of movies. <laughs> well, well, yeah, that would, that would be, well, it would actually be cold in February. Well, but that's yeah, the that point, would, yeah. Yeah, yeah. May, May 4th, you, you might actually have distractions, and if a lucky few might even have some decent weather to, to go take advantage of, but... None Not of the three of us live. would have, yeah, none of the three of us would have good weather. We wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> well, this week we're going to be talking about about the uh, Star Trek movie, uh, First Contact. So I'll just read the synopsis. Captain Picard and his crew pursue the Borg back in time to stop them from preventing Earth's first contact uh, from first contact with an alien species. They also make sure that Zephram Cochran makes his famous maiden flight at warp speed. And that's from IMDb. I, I like this movie, but it kind of encompasses all the uh, Star Trek tropes here. We've got yeah. uh, we got time travel, we got the Borg, we got the Prime Directive. Um, oh, there's a few other in there. Data that I'm being sure that I'm human. Missing. Data yeah. being human. Yeah. Um, yeah. Keep it, going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it hits all the high points, of, like say, of a good Star Trek movie. And like I say, and you know, I'm not disparaging it, but we got all these uh, uh, tropes all in one place here. Which I have, is why I loved it, but that's okay. That's just yeah. me. Uh, like there, there's parts of this movie that I'm not a big, uh, not overly fond of. Like I don't especially like the whole Deanna Troy drunk. Oh, I except thought, that was, was amusing. Well, you know, I thought it was kind of cheesy. It was. There are parts <laughs> of this movie where they're absolutely cheesy, including some of the special effects. Yeah. It's like, oh man, that's just horrid by today's standards. But what the heck? It's it's if you if right. you. Um, realize that parts of this movie are going to be cheesy. Just let them be cheesy. Yeah, but like I also think that this has the best, the single best scene of any Star Trek TV show or movie. That scene at the end where the Vulcans land and they come out and they actually make first contact. Mm -hmm. I think that is the best single scene in Star Trek. I love that. Interesting. Yeah. And one of the guys that I work with, uh, when I told him uh, we were recording this today, he said that uh, when he watched it in Toronto, when it first came out, he said uh, people stood up and applauded during the credits. Really? Yeah. Like, yeah, there, I think this is one of those movies that uh, among certain Trek fans, it's like almost like the high water point of the whole of, of Star Trek. Well, you know, one of the things that, that crossed my mind as I was watching it, and I haven't done the research to look at the dates, but the fact that they kind of bridged several, well, they certainly bridged the next generation with Star Trek Voyager, um, because uh, Robert Cardo, the doctor, showed up in, in uh, right. Sigbay. So, and I, and I'm not sure, but for all I can know, Voyager may have been on TV while this was being released as a movie. Um. I believe so because yeah. Neelix made a, uh, a yep. uh, not not the character but the actor uh, who plays Neelix made a uh, guest shot there in the ballroom. I saw that too. Yep. So <laughs> I, I think you know. I again, I don't I don't have the data in front of me, but my my gut tells me that those two were probably going on simultaneously. So that was just kind of a nice little nod. 
Yeah. But the Vulcan thing too—that's that, interesting. That people stood up because you, you compare the. I have to admit, several things go through your mind when you when I saw this, especially given the podcasts that we've done, the movies that we've seen, um, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the whole alien contact yeah. experience there, and then we just did Contact. And I have to admit, I was sitting there watching the movie thinking how different this version of uh, alien contact was compared to the one in in contact where essentially the entire globe is trying to you know um conspire to you know get in on the action they're almost jockey jockeying for position in contact yeah whereas here it's you know the the vulcans come down to uh, spoiler um to um you know, a, a little camp in the middle of Montana, you know, with maybe, what, 100 people max? So yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally unannounced, totally not communicated. But again, that's part of that's the setting, too. I mean, the, it was uh, described as being after World War Three, and um, I'm confused whether or not the planet was populated by Borg or humans at that point. So, I don't know. Well, it's time travel. All bets are off. I know. That's why I'm confused. I can't remember if that's what they were trying to prevent or if that had already happened. They were trying to prevent. Yeah. Because I think think when when they were doing their whole time travel thing, they kind of skipped through a reality where the Borg had been successful and the Earth was, had the total population was 9 billion and it was all Borg. Right, and it, but even uh, before they'd set up the Earth as being post World War Three, half a billion people killed, all major cities, um, you know, wiped out basically. So, yeah, and I can't again. I should have gone yeah. back and and watched that. I don't know if that was the one they were trying to prevent or the one that existed. Because again, I'm trying to figure out how in the heck the Vulcans land in Montana without you know news reporters showing up. Well, because it was all off the cuff there, because they just happened to see Zephyrin Cochran's uh, warp signature there, and they decided to go investigate that. They found a world that you know suddenly, you know, just barely developed warp drive, um, and so that's why they showed up. And I think you know that may potentially be the way that you know another alien race discovers us. They may not come necessarily looking for us. They may actually stumble across us and come to investigate. Um, right. You know, not any pre-planned invasion or anything like we've seen a lot of these. It's kind of like, hey, let's go see what's going on over there. And, and according to Enterprise, this would have been still when uh, the Vulcans were under military control. Mm. Uh, this was before their big shift to uh, science, right? Uh, the Vulcan timeline, I'm not... I, did, I never really watched yeah. Enterprise too much. And to be honest, I before today, I'd never watched this movie either. So what? I, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I know. Well, it seemed, you know, I watched all the original series movies, uh, but then about this time, you know, kids and work and everything else, we just didn't have time or money to go to the movies. So yeah, I've kind of dropped off. I haven't watched any of the Next Generation movies. I have some I, work to do here. I, I think you're in trouble, Mike. I think Julie's I think in so. her car and her <laughs> gonna say. A motorcycle and she's riding to your house right now. I was going to say, <laughs> we'll go correct this. I've got all of them on the laptop go, you know. But uh, one, I can totally relate to that. That's why I haven't seen all these movies that you I haven't seen, which is why we're doing the mm. podcast. But yeah. yeah, but yeah, no. And my favorite scene, perhaps ever in Star Trek, Zephyrim Cochran, you know, trying to abort the takeoff because he forgot his CD with Magic Carpet Ride. You know, yeah. bring it. 
Well, and I just kind of like the way, because, you know, all through the mythos of uh, Star Trek, Zephyrin Cochran is held up as this stellar heroic figure, and like a lot of stellar heroic figures, they were human underneath, and you get to see this guy that's... Uh, uh, looks like a raging alcoholic, um, has doubts, uh, not real confident about any of this stuff. Uh, and, you know, with, you know, and I don't know, That's this is the problem we get into when we get into time travel. Would he have done this if they hadn't gone back to do it? And would this man, as he existed before they show up, would he have been able to accomplish warp drive without their assistance? I think he would have because that was, I mean, th- they were on the launch pad. I mean, they were ready to yeah. go. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I did, you know, prime directive, all violations left, right, and center here. But um, the idea that Jordy and Riker were his co-pilots, I guess, on the maiden voyage, really, that didn't make the history books? Come yeah. on, you know. Um, so that there was some, you know, time travel anomalies that make your head hurt in this one. And, and just the fact that they're sitting there kind of like smiling knowingly, like they'd be losing their crap. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, if you could go back in time and you were on the like the Nina, the Pinta, or the Santa Maria when Columbus was about to first strike, you know, see the New World, like you'd lose your shit. Yeah, <laughs> like the idea but, that they just sit there calmly and they were grinning ear to ear back there. I will give them that. Yeah. Well, in one of the yeah. earlier scenes too, where Jordy's trying to convince them to, you know. Uh, Get, build his confidence up and keep him going. Uh, he's gushing like a little schoolgirl there, and he's just babbling on and on about how this is where the statue of you is going to be built, and over here is the museum, and you know Cochran sitting there going, "What?" Yeah, and that to me, that was part of the cheesy part too, because I'm sorry if you'd actually gone back in time. I mean, and we're trying to do what you're trying to do, you would so know better than to say crap like that. I mean, you really, really would. I mean, you might sit there and think it, and you might be in awe, but you would not spill your guts and, ta- and say that you'd gone to Zephram Cochran High School, you know, <laughs> um, and tell him what he's going to yeah. say in 10 years. That That's just, you know, uh, anyway. But that's kind of, it kind of, time travel, uh, Terminator come to mind, too, when you're talking about that. It's like, eh. Terminator comes to mind several times in this movie, actually. Borg Queen. Right. <clears throat> mm. yeah. That part of it, I thought, was... I don't know, kind of weak because I, I thought they sort of went against their own rules on the Borg by having like a the, a Borg queen. Did they, you're more of a far more of a Star Trek uh, aficionado than I am, but like, did they ever go back to that where the Borg have some central sort of command? Yeah, there there she shows up a couple times. I think I, okay. Uh, somebody Daryl can correct me, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but. Uh, uh, like there, there, there never seemed to be a time. I don't believe there was a time before this where they ever even led you to believe that the Borg had any central sort of uh, um, kind of coordination. Well, sorry, they were totally coordination, but they 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 never had a central like leadership. Point. Yeah, and I should go back and do some checking because I I'm really not certain here at all. But I thought that they had mentioned the Borg Queen other than just this movie. Um, but even though as she was describing herself, you know, you know, I thought they didn't have a ruler. They had to. Have, no, she is certainly in other ones because they even in the movie they refer to uh, her tempting Jean Luc Pryor. Um, so, but he never. But, he didn't remember that until she said. Until she 
brought until she brought that up. Right. I was like, oh yes, now I remember that. That's why I've never talked about it before because it was I suppressed that memory. Right. Oh. Well, I'm I'm blanking on the name, but they had that two sp- uh, two part Next Generation special where uh, Picard becomes Lucius of uh, oh, of Borg, and I think she was in there. Um, I think so too, but I am not certain because it's been you know like twenty years since I've seen that. <laughs> yeah, and and since this is Star Trek, there's a crap load of trivia here, so I'm probably not going to be able to find it right offhand. But I know it was right. in there somewhere. And I do remember, I think on one of the recent uh, This Week in Trek episodes, Mike and Daryl were talking about the Borg Queen, and they were actually wondering why does uh, a collective need a, a queen, a central well, uh, character like this? Bees. Uh, they call them drones. They call it the hive mind. It's a bee. It, it's a bee colony. And bees have queens. One. One but, only. But you could think about it. The, the queen does not actually direct anything. The queen in a, in a, in a bee colony or an ant colony, or sorry, the bee, bee hive or an ant colony, the queen is there just solely to lay eggs. She is not technically directing them to do anything. They just do that as a collective group. True, and but I did you get the impression I guess maybe you did that she was directing the Borg? I mean Well Who I the heck Mike, is directing the Borg? <laughs> oh, I think she's definitely directing the Borg. Okay. Well, I think Mike and Daryl's take on it was that this is a collective consciousness. That they should all be making this decision. Collectively, you know, collectively yeah. right? Instead of having one, you know, why do you need one person, you know, in charge? You know, I, me personally, either way, I mean, like I don't, like I said, you got to be in the ant analogy, but then you also got the collective consciousness there. I just don't know, you know, logically which side to come down on this argument on. Yeah, I, I, I somewhat agree that a Borg queen is kind of, you know, goes against... Yeah. The idea of Borg. It's just... there's there's an entry in Wikipedia that says uh, about the Borg Queen. It says prior to the movie Star Trek: First Contact, the Borg exhibit no hierarchical command structure. Instead, using a similar structure in principle to to the Internet with no control center and uh, distributed processing. So, the Borg Queen makes a further appearances after Star Trek: First Contact. But there was no other appearances before. Four. Okay, okay. Well, and the and the problem with having a bored queen is all you got to do is take her out, and the rest of the system kind of collapses. Yeah, uh, that Which would be a didn't. weak point. Well, I mean, because if she's then that raises the issue: is there a Borg queen on every Borg cube floating through space? Because they went back in time, and quote unquote, she was yeah. destroyed. So what? The entire Borg. You know, species is now de- what? So yeah, and and like because I think developing the idea of the Borg Queen just raises more questions than it solves. Like if they had a Borg Queen, why did they need Locutus? Right, and there, yeah, no, like, just like okay, well, the Borg Queen, she I, she can be the embodiment of the Borg, can can communicate directly to the to the Federation through her. And can I just make one comment about the Borg Queen seducing Data? Oh my God, you know. <laughs> anyway, creepy. Just yeah. really, we had to go there, but whatever. Yeah. Well, and this whole you know reactivating his emotion chip and trying to get to him that way. Uh, I don't know. I, I like I, said, I don't know if I quite bought that whole scenario or not. Yeah, 
like I said, cheesy. Back to cheesy. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good story. Don't let the cheesy parts, you know, ruin it. So yeah, yeah, I, I, that's actually a really good way to put it. There, there are che- definitely cheesy elements to this story, but uh, overall, like I, I think this is probably one of my. It'd be in my top five favorite Trek things, I think, and 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 definitely that's the ending to it is my favorite Trek thing. Yeah, that, that I love the the scene with the uh, Vulcans uh, drinking beer all soon, whiskey, yeah. you know, looking completely out of place. That was awesome. With rock and roll playing in the background, right? Which scared the hell out of them. Love yeah. that. <laughs> anyway. Um, the tech in here. Okay. Wow, we had warp drive from day one with nacelles and yeah. what else? Uh, See, I, I would have appreciated a little bit of a, an explanation as to what warp drive is. Like, I like I don't know if they've ever... What, Technobabble? You were seeking yeah. out Well, not even tech. Like, this could have been better than Technobabble. Like, it could have been, you know, like, I, I assume that... Because pretty much every warp ship that you see has two nacelles, so there must be something to having these two objects that generate a field between them or something like that, that the ship travels through. Like, I don't know if it's a wormhole or what, but, you know, I never... I've never ever heard, like, a really definitive definition as to what warp drive is. I know it's faster than light, but, but like, how it works. How it works, yeah. Well, they have these dilithium crystals. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, no kidding. And... Um, interesting that it was in a missile silo in Montana. I really are there miss. I mean, I'm in North Dakota or close enough, and there's crap ton of missile silos in North Dakota. Are there any uh, in Montana? There's some in Western South Dakota. Yeah, I'm uh, sure you got Edwards Air Force Base. I mean, but I mean, I, right. Um, Wow, hey, I just figured you guys are Americans, you got them everywhere. Well, that's you? true, yeah. I just, I'm trying to think I of... I got my own missile silo <laughs> in my backyard! At one time, that may not have been an exaggeration. Actually, there's probably one in the basement. Anyway, but, uh, yeah, I guess, I, I'm not, I, I mean, I've, I've seen maps, war games, you know, the movie War Games, we should do that one, Um where they play I've, I've never seen that <laughs> oh gosh that's it we Ooh, need to do that yeah. one but um they play the the game and and basically there's a map of all the missile silos in in north america and i know uh, where i live is like the first place to go because it's you know littered with missile silos left right and center but i don't remember montana having any so it's interesting to me that they chose montana which is actually not all that unusual because montana is a great place to hide if you're a you know, trying to build stuff and stay away from the rest of the society. Well, and whatever warring fractions were coming after him, because um, um, the woman that they take aboard star uh, the the starship, Lily. you know, is wondering, yeah, what fr- uh, fraction or uh, faction are you from? Um, and so, you know, it sounds like there's still the world war may be over, but there's still you know uh, warring factions. The the uh, People of the world are at a pivotal point here, uh, and I think that's why it was important that you know Zephyr and Cochran came along because they, in their big speech to get them all pumped up and ready to go, they said that you know this is the turning point where uh, humankind come together and you know focus on uh, going forth into space and becoming a society and healing themselves. And uh, so it sounds like they were you know uh, 
world was just uh, society was basically falling apart at that time. This is what was needed at that crucial point to bring them all together. Right, and and again, putting pressure on Zephram as well. I mean, basically, this one little flight is going to solve every major world problem that we've ever had. You know, all of humanity's problems since the beginning of time. Um, so yeah, have a good flight. Yeah, no pressure. We're all counting on you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, no, no stress at all. I know. I'd be drinking too if somebody came down from the skies and told me all of that. It's like, yeah, right. Well, uh, especially when they're shooting at you and you right. know what the heck's going on. Okay. Did we decide who was doing the shooting? I can't remember now. Oh, that was the Borg. It was the Borg. Okay. Yeah. And then they shot up the uh, uh, the Borg cube and destroyed it. Or sorry, they shot up that Borg circular oh. ship. Or yeah, whatever, that's right. Destroyed it. Yeah, the the sphere that escaped when they uh, shot the the yeah. the cube at the beginning of the show. There. Yeah, and Picard. I like, watch this again. He never said why he knew how to where to shoot to destroy the cube, and you know they ne- never explained that either. No, they didn't. Except you could the, the implicate the it was implied that he knew where to shoot because he had been part of the Borg. He well, knew, he, kinda, he had inside information basically. Well, it kind of sounded like at one point there he's getting sort of subspace chatter from the Borg because of his implants that are inside him there. So he may have been able to kind of, you know, it wasn't really spelled out, but he may have kind of picked up what they were talking about. And I found the spot that was turning critical and had everybody, you know, shoot at them. You know, it wasn't clearly spelled out, but it seemed like he was still had a certain connection. Well, okay, on Star Wars Day, it would, could have been very much like the Death Star, where everybody would have gone after, I don't know, the gun turrets or whatever, but, you know, little old Luke's going after, you know, the garbage chute, um, and that's what takes out, essentially, that's what played out with the Borg, you know, cube being destroyed. And the, prior to, to Picard showing up, they were all shooting at what they thought were, you know, um, military or sensitive um, targets, whereas he said, no, this little nondescript area over here that is of no value is what you should be shooting at. Boom, it all goes blow. So, yeah, nod to Star Wars there. Well, yeah, basically the Achilles heel. you got to find that one weak spot that, you know, isn't necessarily obvious. It may not be the weapons that you need to worry about. You just need to find the thing that will cripple or, you know, destroy whatever it is you're attacking. Right, yeah, that's yeah. a that's a... That's a, a far overdone trope, I think it's, you mean to say. It's not a trope. It's actually a, a well-used military tactic that has been proven over and over again wow. to be a valid way to win a war. <laughs> but then Hollywood <laughs> Look, took it and ran. Yeah, like yeah. there's no one weak point on a tank. There's no one no. weak point on a battleship. No, no, it's called the know. the lines of the logistic lines of bringing food and 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 uh, clothing to uh, troops in Russia. You know. Um, if you're Napoleon's army, there, there, there's always something in the back that it's like nobody ever thinks about. But it's like, yeah, if that, that's you know, line of supplies doesn't make it. You're dead in the water, regardless of how well your guns are working or swords. Yeah, or, but like that, you know, this, well, the strategy of, of of disrupting enemy logistics is different than than finding a, a an enemy vehicle that has one soft point that true. can be taken up with one shot. True. True. That, They've taken the instantaneous um, uh, Achilles heel rather than, like you say, the, the destroy the supply line and basically starve to death yep. approach because that wouldn't make for much of an interesting movie. Right. Yeah, yeah and this that that's exactly it. Like it, it's a far more interesting storytelling 
um, kind of crutch to have a story like that than to say, oh, we're going to have this uh, story where we just grind out this fight forever, right? Right, which, you know, that's one thing it seems like in space battles, too. Um, urgency is, I mean, you've got, you're dealing with distance, but you're also dealing with compressed, you're really dealing with vast distances, but compressed time. You don't have uh, a hundred year war. You have, you know, 15 minutes, I guess, before auto destruct sequence. Well, um, that's, so. that's, that's in this particular scenario. But, it, right? but, but that there, plays out, that's almost a trope. Well, but there's other sci-fi properties. Like there's, I've read sci-fi other sci-fi books where they have battles that take place over days. That they, they, uh, I can't remember what book it was, but they put themselves in acceleration couches and the the ships' computers fight the battle, and that takes place over like fifteen. Like they launch their missiles and then they wait for like ten hours for them to impact Forever on the other War. ship. Yeah, was was that Forever War? I think so. Okay, I think that's Forever War. And I was about to say, and that's the one exception to the to the trope. <laughs> and I think, you know, with the distances involved in space, that's probably closer to the truth. Yeah, it might be. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, it might be interesting. Um, the mag boots, the the whole EVA um, going on, trying to get the Borg to do what they were. I never really understood what the Borg were up to there. It was some sort of satellite dish or some sort of satellite weapon they were trying they, to... They were trying to make a communications device so they could contact the oh, Borg. that's right. Yeah, back that through time. time. That's and right. The Borg. Yeah. So it would more or less bring the Borg uh, into the, contact with the Alpha Quadrant like uh, you know, a couple hundred years ahead of schedule. Right. So it's basically connecting the one you know past Borg ship with the Borg army of the future. Yeah. Okay, got it. I I knew it would. I mean, I remember watching the movie, knowing, not having a question in my mind about what they were doing, except now that I can't remember. Hey, uh, with your Trek knowledge, Ah, such (laughs) as it is, I'm a fan. uh, I'm not a trivia (laughs) expert. Well, in in Star Trek, the motion picture, when they find Vidger, is is uh, now after the fact when they introduce the Borg and that like so when they retcon everything was the idea that like uh that Vidger Voyager came into contact with the Borg and the Borg created that ship for the for Voyager because there was they referred to it as when it came into contact with the machine planets so i don't know if that's supposed to be like you know after you know granted that that came out in 1980 and it wasn't until like you know the late 80s when they were you know toying with the concept of the borg but is that like after the fact is that where they're they're saying that the borg did that or mike didn't you well i think there was some speculation about maybe it was the borg that they came in contact with and i think you know maybe that concept was maybe the germination point for the Borg, that they may have looked at that first movie and kind of went, ooh, you know, machine planet, you know, what would happen if you had, you know, uh, basically something that came along and started assimilating, you know, bringing in uh, civilizations to themselves, Um, you know, because that's sort of what they did with V'ger, and V'ger was coming back to, you know, mate with its creator, and so it picked up that idea uh or you know to be one with this creator so they, uh i think it may uh it possibly may have spawned um the idea for the borg um the the idea of machine planets or 
city planet. I mean, Coruscant and um, the f- uh, even in Firefly, I can't remember the name of the central planets that were basically, you know, nothing but cities and or machines. Um, that's a trope in sci-fi that, you know, you, the home planet becomes so populated and so built up that it's, that it represents a machine. So, you know, if if I don't know, I'm you know, I'm just making this up here. But if if they had uh, put together the Star Trek the motion picture and and talked about machine planets that V'ger uh, became V'ger, um, that would have been an easy thing to to have imagined at that time. That would have had nothing to do with the Borg. But yeah, I could see where later they would have picked up on that and and carried that to you know the Borg as we know it so it's I, I don't know it's it's amazing how many things tie together I mean even um, Battlestar Galactica is a great example of when they were writing that show they had no freaking idea where it was going they were just making it up as they went but somehow yeah. it all tied together and I think Star Trek is like that as well I mean the Wrath of Khan is a great example the Wrath of Khan was a simple episode on the original series it was you know a throwaway um, other than having Ricardo Montalban as a guest star it was you know completely not you know noticeable except then they turned it into the second movie which most folks will say is the greatest star trek movie ever made um which, so which which one uh the wrath of khan oh yeah okay yeah and so you know a little seed it's uh, space seed haha thank you um uh-huh. but a li- you know a little seed of an idea that's planted in one episode can can, can show up in Later, and they can make whatever they want out of it to to some extent. You know, if there's just enough to go on, they can they can take it and run with it. So, you know, hats off to the writers who make this stuff up. Well, which was what the, last uh, week's episode was about. Anyway, thank you. Yeah, well, even the V'ger uh, movie was a uh, idea that was explored in a uh, original series um, show called the, the Changeling, where basically Nomad uh, came on board ship. So that was kind of a recycled idea. So they're not above taking, you know, ideas that they had explored maybe on the original series and say, let's, you know, play with this a little bit and see what comes with it. You know, for better or worse, there's sometimes that they maybe should have left it alone. But uh Yeah, and you can drag right. stuff out too much, but it you know, the Borg the Borg even today, to some extent you could argue strikes fear into the hearts of men, I guess. You know, the idea that they are a collective that they keep coming that they uh, don't communicate with you you can't reason with them your weapons become you know useless within one or two uses you know just everything about them basically says you know resistance is futile <laughs> um, <laughs> so okay i I searched through Memory Alpha here, and I think I found the closest thing right offhand I find to an answer. Gene Roddenberry, in an interview, said that the machine planet seen by Spock might have been the Borg homeworld. Um, and then the idea was further developed by William Shatner, uh, the William Shatner novel, The Return, where Spock's mind melds with V'ger. Not only um, it goes on and on here, but basically... Um, you know, it was an idea that you know maybe Gene had at the time that you know maybe this again. So this may have been the inspiration for for that. Yeah, wouldn't doubt it. Wouldn't doubt it. It's I mean it's and it's a good. It's one of those ideas that could just kind of um, 
germinate, I guess. You know, you, you don't really think about it, and then all of a sudden it just kind of keeps growing on you, and you keep thinking, you know, really do something with that, because that could be a really good thing to play with. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's a whole big paragraph here uh, in Memory Alpha that, you know, I won't bother with right now, but uh, just looking through, uh, and the, something about V'ger says resistance would be futile. Well, you know, that phrase has become, you know, uh, another Star Trek trope. Right. Um and so, yeah, I, I think they saw some potential there, and they just kind of played with it uh, with the Borg. Yeah, and, and to to great effect. Matter of fact, that one uh, thing I've got in the notes here is it's interesting to me that they chose to. Okay, uh, Picard becoming Locutius was a human turning into a Borg, a cyborg. Data becoming human was oh. an android turning into a cyborg. It was kind of coming from the other end. Yeah, that's inter- I never thought about that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting and, that... Bas- and in both cases, they end up both back where they started. Right, and, and, and rejecting and, it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, well, and really deciding that, yeah, I'm kind of better off the way I was. Yep. Well, and then the the Borg Queen towards the end of the movie, they tried to make the point that they're actually trying to preserve uh, all these cultures by absorbing them. But you know, she kind of fails to uh, notice the fact that you t- strip away everything that makes people unique, and they all become just basically drones. Um, their knowledge may be assimilated, but you lose the individuality that creates uh, that causes causes these civilizations to be who they are. Well, and you could argue too. You know, what good is the knowledge if there's nobody to, you know, use it or display it or live it or I don't know the word I'm looking for here. But you know, you know, having it in a book is not the same as yeah. Okay, like dead languages or the dodo bird. You know, great. We've probably got one stuffed in a museum somewhere, but whatever. Um, I'd rather see one in the skies. Um, so, <laughs> it's it's something to assimilate it and you know preserve it, and it's another thing to actually be it and live it. So you know you can't the, the weak argument, Borg Queen. Try again. Well, um, I'm going to postulate something here that I'm just thinking of off the cuff, but maybe the Borg is like nerdism taken to its extreme, where you're so busy acquiring knowledge that you uh, overlook. Um, you know the creativity and everything else that goes into it, and you know the single you know idea of just collecting knowledge uh, all in the one place just for the sake of collecting knowledge overpowers everything else, and you lose all the stuff that uh, that helped create and get you to the point where you are, and it, and will advance you. You know that's one thing that I'm not clear on, and and we've had this discussion before too. I think with Terminators, like. Okay, so the Borg are going across the universe assimilating everybody, and then what? You know, great. So you've assimilated everybody. To what end? What are you trying to accomplish? <laughs> you know. Well, I, yeah, I, think, the, I think the Borg are trying to accomplish perfection. Well, that could be. That was definitely, yeah. a, uh, you know, that scene was in here. Whatever perfection might be. Yeah. Right. Well, I think their definition of perfection will be when you've eliminated all the imperfect ones and you're the only one left, and obviously you must be perfect. But that, that's, that's along the same lines as people who say, oh, we're, we're going to eliminate poverty. Like, poverty is just the bottom rung on a social ladder. So if you eliminate the bottom rung on a ladder, well, you guess what? The next rung up is it's now the bottom, bottom rung. rung. So then the same thing like with perfection. Oh, well, I've achieved per- perfection. Well, once you achieve that level, you can like, okay, well, the next level up is now perfection, right? Right, yeah. 
does that mean they would eventually turn on themselves uh, because they would be trying to eliminate the imperfect imperfections within themselves? Well, oh, I think they totally would. Yeah, and the, yeah. the organic would be that which is imperfect. So, anyway, yeah, Borg Borg evolution, you know. Yeah, I think one. I think the Borg are one of the most interesting concepts in uh, Star oh, Trek, though. Absolutely. I like the, yeah, there's one. Uh, I think it was. Uh, there's one race that's more dangerous than the Borg. It's uh, they talk about it in Voyager. They're, they're like in a parallel universe or something like that, where even the Borg are afraid of them. I can't. It's it's they're oh. like a number or something. Uh, yeah, I brief. Yeah. I have a vague memory of that. Vague, yeah. vague memory of that. Uh, so, Daryl, if you're listening, please tell us about all the things we've gotten wrong so far. <laughs> <laughs> Submit your MP3 to yeah. scifitechtalk at gmail.com. And remember, we only got a, a big a, a drop box if you want to drop it into there. You know. Oh, Lord. Yeah, no, again, I am much more of a uh, Star Trek fan. And, you know, some would argue I'm not even a qualified Trekkie. Um, but um, I, I certainly do like and it, the stories. And, and really, first contact. I mean, if you if you like Star Trek, there's very little to not like in this show. Cheesy as it might be, um, but it does touch on uh, the original series. It touches on the next generation. There's a nod to Voyager briefly, and it's just there are scenes that are just plain fun, um, as well as scenes that are you know kind of nail gripping and a little eerie. Um, so it kind of has a little bit of everything. Speaking of eerie scenes, what the heck was it with the uh, plasma gas or whatever in the engineering that killed off all the organic beings or something? Yeah. Anybody ever figure out what that was? Was it plasma? I think well, they said it was, it was uh, plasma coolant. Okay. Uh, I mean, yeah. how... <laughs> dangerous technobabble. I know. Killed by dangerous technobabble. That basically. But it, I, you know, I was thinking about all of the... Um, Secret, I assume, but you know, back channel mechanisms to you know kill everybody on the issue. I mean, you have the auto destruct sequence, which you know pretty much everybody is aware of, whether if you're on the ship. But does everybody know that you can release the plasma and kill all the organic flesh on the engineering level? Yeah. I mean, really, is that well? And I, I think if you, <laughs> I think if you punctured your main coolant tank, I think you'd have problems, you know, taking the ship back home. Yeah. There's some issues Cause, cause there. Certainly, Earth of that period didn't look like they were awash in plasma coolant. Well, plus the idea that you can release it all, and it's heavier than air, so it stays on the floor, and then yeah. suddenly you open a vent, and it all goes away, and everything doesn't you help. Just walk it around doesn't and somehow yeah. eat its way through the hull of the ship. Right? Yeah, that was that was a little convenient. Yeah. But and then disperses harmlessly. Right. Sure. Okay, but it was convenient, you know. Yeah. Well, they got oh no! I've been killed by a plot device. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is well, and the, you know, and the other fact that maybe there was a logical reason that they had to be all centered around the warp core. There, maybe that's where they were tapping into everything. But it was very convenient that everybody who needed to be destroyed happened to be gathered around there when Data decided to, you know, uh, smash the uh, the breakable. Um, I realize she's an android, but still, I think if I, it's something that's going to eat through human flesh, I'd want to make sure that it's contained, I don't know, like in steel. Yeah. At least in a, in a vessel that's a little bit stronger than you just smack your hand against it and open a hole. Yeah. You know, force field, uh, 
what uh, transparent aluminum, you know, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, the the uh, the, the Borg being an engineering all in one place. That doesn't really surprise me because they talked about how they had taken over certain decks and the they had changed the environment to suit them, certain temperature, certain humidity. Um, so the fact that they were all in kind of one place, I'm not that that doesn't seem too weird to me. They had basically taken over all control of the ship and and uh, centralized it in that one place. So I think the design and the concept of the Borg that owes at least a little bit of a nod to uh the alien franchise yep because certainly their their layer or whatever you want to call it certainly looks like an alien hive right mm-hmm. well with the recharging stations and uh, everything there that they need to you know survive and keep going yeah it does did sort of resemble that and the very organic looking like the tendrils on the wall and cabling just it looked very similar to right to the alien and, and the Borg Queen has got to be, you know, a nod to Terminator. I mean, Lord, just almost really. Did they use the same props? Because um, oh yeah, the the skull, the and skull and the spine stuff, and you know everything. So I- including even the red lights, you know, emitting from eyes. <laughs> yeah, that was, which is that goes back prior to the Borg Queen. I mean, that's just Borg in general. But yeah. Speaking of eyes, did you catch Jordy's eyes? Yeah. No visor in this movie. No. No, it was a little creepy. I mean, I'm I'm so used to seeing him, you know, with the visor on and everything. And yeah, now he's got these, you know, super bionic eyes that's got, you know, everything apparently built into him so he can, you know, he's got all of his sensors and all the things that he needs to analyze everything all built in there. Uh, but yeah, it was just kind of I don't know unnerving because I watch pretty much all the next generation TV shows and to see him there without the visor on, it's different. It is different, and I'm not sure I, uh, you know, just from a science perspective, you know, I don't know exactly what his quote unquote disability was, but um, really, you can't like 3D print or organically grow clone eyes or something, and you had to do these mechanical implants and. Well, if, if you'd been blind since birth and you were, you know, the first thing you were given was that visor, like, so he, he saw in the electromagnetic spectrum. And, right. Well, why, why would you want organic eyes? Yeah. Because you're already used to better eyes than that, so. Right. And you could, you, that could be the issue. And, and maybe these implants were simply a replacement to the, you know, capabilities he has as, as with his visor. So. You know, again, there's never enough details that I'm aware of that would say one way or the other. But it did seem awfully strange that he would have these mechanical eyes. Well, but think about it, though. He is an engineer. What would be beneficial to an engineer to have thermal imaging built into your eyes? You don't have to grab a device. And to be able to switch over to, let's say, microscopic vision. I don't know what all you know superpowers his eyes had. But you know anything that would give you an advantage in engineering, you know, I would be all over it. Google Glass of the 24th century? Sure. <laughs> I would be on it. Okay. I, I want I want Google Glass. I mean, I, I want was going to say the at that point. Yeah. Okay. I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you know, it would have you know facial recognition, so I it will tell me who I'm talking to because I do not remember their names. Yeah, I would be on that in a second. You know, if I had fifteen hundred dollars and could get over everyone calling me a dork, but you know, <laughs> like I say, I'd be on it in a minute. Yeah. Interesting. They were they were weird from a technical 
standpoint too. I mean, they were just kind of weird. Anyway, well, well, you know, you you brought up the eyes, and we were talking about the Borg, and you know, this does still kind of tie back into the. You know, we want said we want to do an episode that would break, uh, do a break from the medical stuff that we've been doing here, but you know, you look at the Borg and you look at Jordy's eyes. There's still kind of a medical theme going on there from like our last two shows, Repo Men and Fantastic Voyage. But you know, uh, we're still talking about medical science here and all the things you know that can. You know, speculating what can be done to uh, a human body and all the modifications that can be made because you know they showed a few scenes there where the Borg would just like lop off somebody's arm, have an implant there, and just screw a you know a, a multi-use tool into them, and they weren't getting hands anymore. They were getting like these things that were saws, yeah, so, yeah. saws or you know uh, tweezers for lack of a better, right. you know, grippers, uh, different things, it, it, you know, uh, specialized tools that they were given, but you know. That they they were still kind of exploring the medical science part of things there. That what you could do to a human body. Speaking of which, there was one cheesy medical scene too. They were down on the planet on Earth, and um, Lily had just fainted basically, and it had theta radiation poisoning or whatever. And they were going to they needed a vaccine, so Crusher you know basically gives her an, an inoculation, and then goes ahead and inoculates the rest of the crew standing by her, and she, including through her big freaking Sherpa coat, you know, with uh, <laughs> leather and fleece and everything else. And I'm like, yeah, right. I'm sure you gave yourself an injection through that, but uh, whatever. Yeah. And I, I like the idea you can inoculate yourself against radiation. I That's know. It. <laughs> That well, amusing. Listening to the mission log pod, you know, and their uh, recapping of all the Star Trek shows, they keep pointing out how uh, uh, Bones has this thing about, you know, he, they kind of call him a drug pusher because he's always whipping out a, you know, a, a hypo spray and, you know, and, and are uh, shooting people up with all kinds of stuff all the time. So apparently, you know, they they're still doing it, to, you know, even after Bones is gone. Yep. So. Oh well, if it makes people better, well, go for it. You got to do something. It's not like you're going to perform. You know, it's not like you're going to say, "Take these three pills and call me in the morning." And by the way, we've got a movie to to keep going on with here. So yeah, plot device. Ah, <laughs> uh, what did you think of the little escape pods that uh, the Enterprise had there? Uh, my wife looked at them and said they look like pianos. P- okay. Okay. Oh, Rising yeah, okay. up out of there. Yeah. Um, and there was a bit of trivia. They were actually now. I suppose I can't find it. Um, they were actually caps from. Oh shoot! No, I can't. Pizza. Find it. <laughs> they looked like yeah. They looked like those little pizza things. Well, they did look like that. But yeah, they were actually something. But you know, like I say, I probably won't be able to find it buried in all this stuff here. Well, the first thing I thought of when I looked at those was those are so not going to make reentry. <laughs> They're gonna burn up on, in the atmosphere. I don't know, You look at that that, that Soyuz capsule, and it looks like a bowling ball. So that's true. <laughs> and that crashes down on dry land. So yeah. Uh, one one not a, tri- a trivia since you know we are making jokes about Star Wars Day. Um, they did say that some of the visors uh, that the Borgs used were actually apart from uh, some Star Wars uh, toy. Um, that they use. So there was actually a little bit of Star Wars in the Star Trek movie. Uh-oh. Easter eggs. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, they have all kinds of those little things in there. Um, um, 
one question I kind of got started on this earlier, but but got distracted or we went a different direction. Mag boots, the mag boots that they were using for the EVA. Yep. Do they actually use mag boots? I mean, is there such a thing? I know they use Velcro up there. Um, you mean I don't know. Actually, in space. Yeah, I know that they use Velcro to you know kind of not bump um, against things. That's what Velcro was invented for. Um, but. I don't know if any if mag and the idea that you turn the mag on and off. I mean that can be done. Yeah. But um, it's it was a little. I don't know. It's. I mean to me it does seem like it would is something that would work. I would want a, a tether still, well, especially if you could turn it on and off. <laughs> but my, um, my question would be: magnetism works with steel and iron right how much steel and iron are in like a uh, space station um wouldn't they try to keep the weight down by using you know aluminum and lighter grade non-metallic uh, metals for well the yeah most i part? guess uh, lily made the comment about the titanium in the oh. ship uh there's an entry in wikipedia under magnetic boots that says magnetic boots have not been used in actual space flight because of the potential for magnetic interference with navigation and communication systems so ah, that makes sense that does make sense uh, so these are real special mag boots then yes <laughs> yes either that or communications and navigation is advanced beyond being interfered with by mag boots so yeah yeah. It's special shielding or something. Mag boots are one of those sci-fi, you know, technologies that show up in a variety of places. But yeah, I'm good to know that they're not really being used. I mean, they they could be used. They're just choosing not to. Interesting. Yeah, make it uh, very. Uh useful for hanging upside down and stuff like that. Yeah, I was gonna say actually, I could use some mag boots in the house. I wouldn't mind, you know, going up there and like. Just hanging upside down for a while. Yeah, I could walk across the rafters in the gym and change light bulbs. That's what I was thinking. I, I need to paint oh. the ceiling. I wonder if that would make painting the ceiling easier somehow. Uh, except trying to fill it. Well, you'd have to have your tray going the right direction. Right, yep. You turn it upside down, you're going to have paint on the floor. That's true. <laughs> Plus, if I had my feet stuck to the ceiling, I'd have to bend over. Basically, sort of bend over would be like doing you know major sit-ups. So anyway, wouldn't work. I, I think this whole mag boots on on Earth would just kind of mess with a person's mind because your idea of up and down would be screwed up. Yeah. Out in space, you know, hopefully <laughs> you're already be. screwed up. <laughs> right. So. Yeah, just, I'm sure. Like when you when the astronauts do like EVAs, that must be one of the major things that would screw you up is like just where where up is where where up and down is yeah well that's why you don't refer to up and down it's port and starboard and you know aft and those you know the uh, nautical terms yeah they come they come in handy well what do you call space just out there just out yeah. there <laughs> the dark side well we've covered up covered off most of the tech that we've listed so if you had to pick one piece of tech from the movie what uh, would it be Julie oh gotta think about that let's see well besides you know the Starship Enterprise um, <laughs> I'm thinking of the tech that in Zephram Cochran's camp um, and even there they had some some neat little things and 
a, a, an interesting juxtaposition of you know old school camping equipment to uh, you know titanium warp drive type stuff. I don't know. What would I take for a tech out of this movie? <laughs> Honestly, I, know what I, I don't know. I know what I want. Which one? I want data. I want data. Ah. <laughs> Good answer. Yeah, yeah, you know, my perfect robot friend who would, you know, have whatever feelings I told him to have or, you know, whatever or, you know, that. And he could, you know, he could probably be the person uh we he'd have a, a Calm, like he could do my Google glasses. He'd always be with me, and then he could re- remember who these people are, and then you know, whisper uh, into my ear or through the calm, like tell me who these people are, you know, whatever. But you know, just the idea of having you know your your perfect companion there with you just seems like a uh, an interesting idea. I know what I want for technology. I want a I want a faster than light ship that fits in a missile silo. That's what I want. <laughs> cool. That's what what I was going to say was I'd take the Phoenix. The, yeah. Uh, uh, warp ship. There you go. Okay, I finally with found the CD player. If that's what oh, yeah, I with... continue to call it, <laughs> of course. <laughs> okay, this is what I was thinking about. The escape pod doors on the Enterprise are the center sections of cowl induction hoods found on many high-performance cars and trucks. You so. know what I thought they looked like? Sleds, snow snow sleds. What's this? On the when on the um, scenes where. Like where Picard is saying goodbye to Lily, and Lily says, I get it, you're not coming with. And then she slips into essentially an escape pod, and the door is on a hinge from the floor, and it comes up, and there's like oh, yeah. a row of those. Looking at that row of those quote unquote doors, to me, they look like snow sleds. Little plastic snow sleds. Oh, okay. Yep. <laughs> and what were they actually? Uh, cowl induction hoods uh, from many, uh, that are on many high performance cars and trucks. Which so makes the sense. Ones that, the ones that would go on your your hood, yep. you know, for a Mustang for, hood. Okay. Hmm. Cool. So I'll take the Mustangs that goes with the hoods. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do we have anything else to go over on the movie? We pretty much covered it. Oh, I'm sure uh, we pretty much covered it, but we could go on forever. Never yeah. mind. <laughs> yeah, there's like I say, there's tons of trivia in here. Uh, the one thing here that uh, Cochran asked Jordy, uh, do you people in the 24th century ever pee? I know. Because you never see any uh, bathrooms on Star Trek, so they kind of threw that one in there. <laughs> uh, that's pretty funny. Well, I love the idea that he has to explain the terminology, take a leak. <laughs> yeah, because Jordy, the engineer, is one we're probably worrying about a plasma leak. Somewhere. Right, yeah. You know, engineers, they stay focused on things, so... Is true. <laughs> Engineers are still geeks in the 24th century. They are. Oh, gosh, oh you betcha. <laughs> All right. So that wraps up this episode of Sci Fi Tech Talk. You can check us out on sci fi where there's some cool space junk available for purchase, or you can follow us on Twitter at Sci Fi Tech Talk. If you have ideas or comments, please send them to Sci Fi Tech Talk at gmail.com, and reviews on iTunes are always welcome. Mike, where can people find you? Uh, I can be found on Twitter at DSC Chipman, and I have an about.me page at about.me slash Mike McPeak. That's M-C-P-E-E-K. Cool. And Julie, where can people find you? I also can be found on Twitter at Julie Keel, J-U-L-I-E-K-U-E-H-L. And links to the other blogs, podcasts, and whatever else I might have going on can be found at about.me slash Julie Keel. 
All right. And you can find me on Twitter at Bronco Sire, S-Y-E-R, where I'm constantly apologizing for the antics of Rob Ford. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this show, and we'll see you in the future. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go?